Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Episode 252 begins right now, dear listener, and we want to thank you for being a part of it. This week, we start a new series of interviews with guest Russell Swinney. He's the owner of a management consulting firm called Interstructure here in Dallas, and they provide interim technology executive leadership services for companies in times of transition or trouble. But you don't start off as an executive leader in technology. In fact, Russell didn't even start off in technology. He started as a mechanical engineer who later became a technologist, and we're going to hear the story of how that happened. During the course of his career, Russell has learned that management is war. What does that mean, and why should we spend time learning how to hug the cactus? It's always interesting to hear why someone started a business. So in this first part of the discussion with Russell, you'll get to hear the story of how he started his business and did something he calls engineering his exit from the employer he was working with at the time. Also, how does the chief information officer or CIO of a company look at the world? How can we better understand how the CIO of a company thinks? And moreover, what about the chief information security officer or the CISO? Russell will tell us about looking at the world through that lens and he also believes there are two distinct types of CISOs out there with a different focus in each case. Which type of CISO would you want at your company or would you want to grow into someday? You be the judge. Let's get started with part one of our discussion with Russell Swinney. Russell Swinney, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey podcast. It's good to be here. I'm excited to, to be part of this. We're excited as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do today? What I do, I provide interim CIO, CISO, CTO services for companies in times of transition or trouble. And is that something that you get an associate's degree for or... <laughs> yes, the school of life. It really is a combination of just all the walks that I've that I've had in, in my career and my ability to give back to companies that are in times of times of stress. I uh, work well in a crisis, so this is a good opportunity to apply that. I'd love to hear the journey of how you got there, but maybe maybe we can start with how you got exposed to technology in your formative years. In their 80s, this is a long time ago, I began supporting just personal computers on the, on campus when I was in college. A lot of mainframe work, and I hated the mainframes and the punch cards and Fortran. So I began supporting uh, my forestry department's uh, computer. Uh, they bought some computers, PCs, and they asked me to help put them together, string them power-wise. That's all you had to plug in back then, right? 
but make it work. And uh, TRS-80s, the old old computers, and they wanted me to help find ways to utilize them. So I, I wrote a, a manual, a book on things to do, and that led me to uh, them offering me a graduate degree program in order to teach computing in, at A&M at the uh, forestry school, College of Agriculture. So I taught computers. They built a brand new computer lab. Uh, I was off to the races. Now remind me, the, the TRS-80, that sometimes used a tape recorder as an information storage device. Is, is that correct? These used eight and a half inch floppy disks. Oh, wow. Eight and a half inch. Yeah, just big old thing. You'd slide them in there. Big old whopping 8K or so, maybe 16K in memory. Those were around a while and, and we created the interest. And then that led us to building a new computer lab with newer computers and more memory and things. But uh, as, as the personal side of the computing world was just taken off, uh, I was just in a great spot at the time. That's kind of what, what led me to where I uh, where I am today. I became uh, a technologist and have been learning ever since. How were you in that situation where you were the go-to expert or you could provide some expertise on that in college? Like, you Were you studying forestry? Yeah. I started out in mechanical engineering and, again, the Fortran and graphical drawing. Okay. With the pen, with actual pencils punch cards and Fortran. And that wasn't me. I'm very mechanically inclined. So I thought, gee, it'd be great. I was also, uh, you know, like a Boy Scout and I hiked, spent a lot of time hiking all the mountains and doing lots of camping. So I thought, man, I should get into forestry because, you know, I know all that already. I, I didn't, but I thought I did. So I, I got involved with them and uh, it was a good ride because I did very little actual forestry and a great deal of technology. And I became uh, very focused on, on all that and applying technology to uh the business of forestry, wood products industry, a lot of those are, are pretty big paper, wood paper products. Now, how about that teaching assignment? You mentioned that someone gave you that as part of the graduate studies program in conjunction with the forestry and the work you had done in the computer lab. How did you like that adjustment of having to teach computers after you had developed a little bit of knowledge in that area? It sounds like through self-study. Well, actually, and I had just learned it all myself, right? So uh, I find that the less you know, the easier it is to teach someone. The more I know, the less patience I have for someone who's not getting it. But uh, having just recently learned a lot of all that on my own, I knew the struggles that I went through to pick up certain, you know, ideas. So it helped me teach. Uh, you know, we had like a computer dissection lab one day where we just took the thing apart. You know, this is a hard drive. Let's saw it in half. Let's see what it looks like. So it was it was fun. That's an interesting uh, point. When you've only recently acquired knowledge, you know how difficult it is to acquire. And so you have maybe a little bit more patience for somebody who's in that process, maybe in contrast with somebody who, you know, lives, breathes, and, and thinks the basics. Oh, wait, you don't know your, your multiplication tables? Uh, I don't even know how to explain, you know, how to do this, right? Well, you know, the, the tendency to just scream, you don't know this already, comes out. But you know, now that I've kind of been leading for so long, it, it's helped me to understand everybody's on a learning journey. That's also what spurred me into getting into mentoring because it, it helps me uh, helps me stay current with what they are learning, but also how they're learning, right? People learn differently today than, than I did, and it helps me to understand how that works. I like what you said there, Russell, because the longer it's been since we experience the challenge of the learning something new, we can forget what those challenges were. It's just like when someone onboards into a new job. 
If you've done that job for eight years or ten years, you might not remember some of the things that no one told you when you were coming into it to tell that person. And then they come ask you and you realize, oh, wait, I forgot that we didn't tell them this. And it's just something that I've internalized and know it's part of the job. But it was never clearly communicated to that person. You know, doing what I do, I change jobs or companies a lot as a consultant, right? I'm there for six to 18 months and I'm out. And I've become very sensitive to people who start a new permanent job and their first day of the job, no one knows they're coming. There's no equipment. There's no place to sit. No one to talk to about what I was hired to do. We're just not ready for it yet, but we need you here today anyway. So I've gotten very sensitive to that. If, some, if you're going to hire someone, you know, the day before, you make sure everything's ready for them. They got a place to sit. They have all their technology they need. Their boss needs to take them to lunch and make sure, hey, first half of the day, how's it going? Have you found everything? Can I show you anything? Here's your peers. Let's make sure we talk with each other. That soft introduction is really important. There needs to be company swag. You know, that's kind of a thing these days. I think I've got swag from every company. I could just give them some of my old trade show stuff, right? But just a good welcome feeling in an organization. That onboarding experience, that's kind of a big deal. It's an interesting thing to focus on. I never really thought about it, but it's true. If you if you join an organization and they don't have the technology ready for you and nobody knows you're coming <laughs> and, and your boss doesn't acknowledge you, then uh, <laughs> that can make for a, an odd experience. Well, compare that to the requirements listed in the H, in, by the HR department in the res, in the uh, job description, right? You apparently need to be a rocket scientist, uh, philosopher, and PhD in you know twenty different topics in order to get this low level starting job, and also have twenty years of experience. So you'd think with that, somebody who makes it through that gauntlet, I mean, they'd at least care enough to show you where to sit. Yeah, I'm sorry. The job description said that you needed to have good organizational skills. Not that we have good organizational skills. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wonder if this is a good interview question that the candidate should be asking people on the team. Like if they do a technical interview with a, a potential team member, maybe a great question for the potential candidate for that company is ask that team member like, okay, how long have you worked here? What keeps you there? But also, what was your onboarding experience like at this company? Do you remember what the first day was like and or what people have told you their first day was like who have been recently hired? And maybe that could give you some perspective on what you might be walking into. I don't know. I just thought of it as we were talking. That's a fantastic idea, Ned. Also, it, it alerts them if they do become your team members. You're expecting a little give back here, right? Help me leg up. I'm here to help you. That's great. And it's an excellent point. And it, it really set, sets people up for what the culture of the team and the organization is. The organization could be mildly disorganized or, you know, there's a one-off interruption of, of logistics for laptops or whatever. But if the team is there and willing and able to welcome the new team member and make sure that they get oriented, even without, you know, specific technology, then, then that, that, that can really compensate for, for a lot, to be honest. Yeah. Go back to the mentoring for a second, Russell, but I want to look at it from a different perspective. You mentioned you had mentored a lot of people. How did mentors impact where you went once you got out of school? Once you finished that degree program, was there some mentor who said, hey, Russell, you should actually go in this direction or let me help you out here? Is that part of the reason 
that you enjoy mentoring today, or maybe that has nothing to do with it? It has a lot to do with it. That's a great question, Nick. And I would say the reason I, I want to be a good mentor because I, I really wanted one and I never could find one. So um, it would have helped me a great deal. I, I think I've made quite a number of mistakes in my career that um, if I can help someone else avoid because I, I did them wrong, then I'm excited to do that. I know that's kind of the one of our statement principles for even starting the podcast was to tell people, you know, maybe avoid some mistakes and, and learn from, from others. I'm wondering how one goes through the process of becoming a good mentor, in your opinion, especially being in a situation where you where you didn't have one at kind of the foundational parts of your career. Yeah, I mean, it might be like people who grew up without a dad turn out to be great dads because they they didn't have a good or bad example, right? I don't know. What I, I also learned from my mentees a great deal. I learned how they're learning. I learned the challenges they're facing. Some of them I can't comprehend. But I understand the business world, I understand the technology world enough to give some ideas. One of your questions was like, what's mentoring versus managing for leaders, right? And a leader is a mentor. A manager is someone who's just an administrator of HR policies. And that's kind of harsh, but so don't be that way, right? Be, be a good manager. A manager can, can build up their team. The objective of a manager is to have somebody who can step into your role. At every step you take in life, you want your goal is to train up someone who could take your place. Even if you're an entry-level person, you're going to want to have somebody trained up to take your place. And that's my, my role as a CIO, interim CIO, CISO, is to find the person who can step into this role um, and let me leave. Hopefully, after I've made enough money to justify being there. A good example of this is uh, I worked with uh, somebody who's a mid-level in their career, you know, pr- approaching the top. And they were concerned, you know, I'm kind of stuck in this in this role and I'm thinking about changing. And my advice was not yet. Don't move. You've got a great job, incredible, globally recognized experience you're gaining. A boss who loves and protects you, you know, from all the foolishness of bureaucracy and administrative silliness and great pay. So you're good right now. You're, what you're building now is good. And this is not an economy to go jumping, right? I would have loved to have some advice like that when I was in similar situations. And only because I I made the wrong choice, I'm able to say, hey, well, I recognize this danger. In that difference between being a leader and a manager, what would you recommend listeners really think about before they take on a role as a manager or leader? Because I think a lot of people might feel like their only way to advance their career is to be a manager of people in their organization, either because that's what they're getting pressure to do, or that's the only way to move up in that organization. But I think some people may be teetering there as a as a next step in their career. Well, that's a hot button for me, Nick. I've been in organizations like that where they've had a, a fantastic technical resource. And I was kind of that way too. I was, I was nationally known for doing a, a technical thing, but to move up, I had to go into management. And, and uh, my advice to people at that in that at that point is just remember that you can always feed your family with current technical skills. If you keep your technical skills up to date, you can always get a job doing that. Management becomes time a dozen, right? It almost becomes a, it's a, such a common thing, and the the unique hands-on skills fade. Another reason why I have to keep learning, and I can't keep up for sure. But just staying being current enough. But someone in that role, I advise, you know, hang on to it. But the thing that I, that I really like to promote is 
forget the management track. If you're a technical person and you want to stay that way, right? You want to be the best in the planet at what you do. The organization you're, you work with needs to support that. They need to have a, a track that lets you advance financially, you know, as well as um, in recognition level as just being a stellar technical person. Who cares if you make more than your manager or more than a director? It shouldn't matter. If, you, if you're the technical person with the skill that makes that company operate and you know you, you keep everything running smoothly, what a manager wouldn't give to have someone like that as opposed to somebody who's just breaking things all the time. If somebody's working for me and, they, and they're a technical person and they've reached the top, let's just break the top. Don't be confined by that in the organization. And if the organization you're with doesn't recognize that ability, then you can look around, but that company is going to re- regret not hanging on to you. But I still see it. Companies will have you locked in some HR mythical boundary of pay that you can't break out of because you know, you're a certain role and it's, it's just wrong. So it's if you if there's talent in an organization, you know every human's got some talent. Find a way to maximize it, and then throw away the HR book. Sorry, I'm letting my biases show. No, that's uh, that's very telling. I think that Nick and I have both worked in organizations that had really strong technical career tracks. You know, for individual contributors, you know it's always super gratifying, and it helps you understand the path forward, or at least one of the paths forward. In, in addition to maybe shifting the type of job you have internally without leaving the organization as a whole, like so, you know, working for a different division or different product team or, or something along those lines. Maybe that is about building organizations. And I, I'm curious to know where you kind of educated yourself on those types of uh, topics. The business side, a lot of my graduate studies were in um, operations research. So it's very heavily statistics, a lot of biometric data, and then processing, you know, manufacturing processing data, finding ways, mechanical ways that would shave a millisecond or two off some process that would end up saving, you know, the company hundreds of thousands a year. So, you know, I was motivated by that kind of thing. And that kind of got me into the analytics side. And through that, I, I began it's the real business focus because at the end of the day, uh, you could have a cybersecurity program that's great. You can have technology that's great. But if you're not doing just what you need to do to meet the needs of the business so it's successful, and you're building it all for naught. I had two different clients in a similar industry once. One of them had amazing technology. They spent plenty of money. They bought the best stuff. They spent a lot of money to get it running right. And within a year, they failed. And another company, they drove me crazy because they just ran on shoestring technology-wise uh, and had me come in and fix stuff all the time. But, you know, they, they paid their bills and um, they're still around. So there you go. It's it's about what you need. And so we as technologists and cybersecurity people, we strive for things to be right. There are occasions when, you know, it's okay not to be right. A good example of this is, say, uh, there's, a, there's a virus coming through and there's a problem in the systems that they need an update. But at the same time, there's some business function going on that's that's mission critical for the organization. So you've got to weigh the business need over the technology need if it's possible. And if the the risk involved with delaying is greater than that business, then okay. It's really not going to be the decision of the person who pulls the plug. That needs to be pushed up. You need to let the CEO know, we're going to turn off this mail server, even though you're about to send the most important email in your company's history. Because if we don't, the entire company's never coming back, right? But that's going to be a decision that person makes. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to 
keep on pursuing this line of question, but but I think maybe we should uh, rewind a little bit and and find out how you got from getting your graduate degree into getting into information technology. What did that path look like? Uh, my uh, master's thesis was on um, plant study manufacturing where I was applying statistics. It's sort of funny, but I wrote an AI module for an Allen Bradley PLC controller in 1986. Now, back then, AI was nothing more than just a database and lookup tables that would refer to each other based on whole litany of conditions. By today's standards, that database was tiny, right? That list of databases was tiny, but, you know, it's the same concept today. It's just massive amounts of data. So the control points are even finer. But that was 1986. And if I'd have stuck with AI back then, I'd be a gajillionaire. But, you know, uh, lacking a mentor, I I pursued other things and uh, moved to Dallas and started uh, teaching computer programs, you know, like Paradox at the time, database. The book I wrote for college was spreadsheets, databases, uh, word processors. So I brought that same concept here. I was working for Nations Bank at the time. That lasted a while. And then I got a job at this company called Cybertech, but um, I traveled the country. I built the, the networks, Novell Networks at the time, for all the world's largest life companies, life insurance companies. It was great. I loved it. Lots of travel, young single guy. Uh, it was fantastic. And that's what led me on this path and started doing financial services after that, building data centers. After that, I ended up, hey, I can do this for myself. So that was 26 years ago that I founded this company and still running. So you started off with small language models in the 1980s instead of large language models like we have today. Well, they were big to me, mister. I mean, back in the day, those type of things on a lookup table, that was kind of called a, an expert system, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Trying to, to replicate the decision-making process that a human would go through if they had a lot of time to look up a lot of things. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly it. But the brochure said AI. So when the company, you know, was interested in doing it, we sure we were sure to put the AI letters on there. But expert lookup system is is more appropriate, probably. Yes. Thanks for shooting down my hopes. Hey, <laughs> it's expert systems like that. That's a an AI term, so it's certainly within the realm of AI. And also calling anything AI is well within the realm of the AI hype cycle. So I think you were just uh, you you're missing the generative. If you say it's a generative AI, then then you have a billion dollar company. It's true uh, that some of it was made up. If that if that helps. <laughs> you mentioned you eventually started your own business. Before that, you were building data centers. In that progression path to starting your own business, were you a people manager at any point, or were you only an individual contributor? I didn't quite catch that part. Yeah. So when I was building data centers. I definitely had a team of 28 people, 28 engineers that I hired from around the country to help build and then operate the data centers. And prior to that, when I was building the networks for the life companies, my job was for all of their clients, I would ensure that they had a properly hired and trained help desk support teams and systems admins to to administer the servers. And, and then I would show up whenever there was a bigger problem and solve it. It was great. Back when I was top of my technical career, which is fun, but also doing some people work. So I really prefer the technical side at first, but I found I was I was good. I liked working with people as well. I liked people. I also saw that management that I worked with missed a lot of really important ideas that they could have could have had big impact, but they they just didn't look or listen. And I found um, I could bring technical 
data and fact-based information to management and impact the course of decisions, right? I could bring these bring these to the conversation and have an impact. So technical information that's factually correct with data points could sway management to, to change their mind. Like a PowerPoint today, a nice PowerPoint chart. Oh, this is good. We want to we want to do that. Kind of like that. But I found that inspiring to do when I could I can move the course of progress at a company. So um, just kept pursuing that and doing more and more of it. I still say gain technical skills and experience in, in your career because you can always feed your family with technical skills when you keep them up. So that's important. But at the same time, you can see how you deal with people. And if the people that you strongly disagree with, right, they honestly may become some of your greatest allies if you work it right. And management is war, so you need allies. Yeah. I mean, people you disagree with, hopefully you're you're not disagreeing with over personality. You're disagreeing with over maybe strategy or tactics. I, I don't know. I, John, I, I mean, personality conflicts are, uh, are rife as well. And some of the people that just rub me completely the wrong way, they could be, they could agree with me. They could do it in a way that just irks me like crazy. But by finding a way to work through some of that, I found I grew. I found I could impact them in a positive way. Some I could never reach, but it became a challenge. Now, when I land somewhere new, it's like fun. Okay. I'm going to hunt around and see who's going to hate me. And I'm going to take them to lunch and see if I can make them hate me more, right? Just so we can break through all this, right? And, and if I can generate an ally from what would have been an enemy, think of all the things I could change. And I do a lot of that. It's easier for me when I, I drop into a company that's had somebody in that role who was the enemy. So when I show up, I'm replacing the enemy. But oh, by the way, I'm not that person, right? I'm willing to be your ally because I have to make progress and then I'm out of here. So why don't you tell me who you want in this role? Whatever it takes to make them happy and then get what I want. Now, did you know before you took on this people leadership role that it was going to be war and some of those interesting people conflicts that you were stepping into beforehand? Oh, no. I was I was standing in the road with my eyes big and wide and bright at those shiny lights coming my way and then clunk, hit by the train of that sort of stuff. So I've learned to uh, to be prepared for it, but I've also learned to just go seek it out, embrace it at first. I, I call it hugging the cactus. You find out what's going to be painful, let's just go get it over with right now. I do like the idea of, of seeking out the things that are going to be painful, that, you know, potentially, if it's hard conversations, if it's difficult decisions that need to be pondered, it's, it's I think, a natural human tendency to shy away from the uncomfortable and towards the comfortable. Even the slightest hint of the ability to to hug the cactus, so to speak, I think can can put one ahead, right? Just to say, hey, this is something difficult that we need to face and it's a difficult decision we need to make. It's a difficult, you know, technology problem to work through. You know, certainly it's not going to be fun, but it's but it's important. I mean, to be honest, let's be fair. I mean, even I was grumpy, a grumpy technician for a while, right? So I've learned not, not to overlook talent because someone's in a role because they're there for a reason. That talent might need to be developed some, even if it's hard to get along with. But the reward for polishing up that rough stone is, is huge. Would it be fair to say, Russell, that you chose to pursue leading people because you felt you could make a larger impact and that was rewarding to you, but also if someone else is looking to make a wider impact, it is very likely they will have to do a lot of hugging the cactus to grow into that. 
That's true, uh, I think. But it's also, there's some protections on that with the technical focus, right? If you decide not to make the management jump and pursue technical excellence, you know, we seek out expert technical people, right? They're hard to find. A super senior full stack developer nowadays is making a lot of money. We're all looking for them. So, hey, go for that, you know? And if I can help you in your career to, to attain that, if I can help you find the training you need, uh, just the encouragement to take the right steps. Someday you're going to be at a company that's sucking and they'll have to call me in to fix and, and you'll be you'll know who to recommend. Can you tell me the uh, the where the idea of your uh, management consultancy company came from? That's a great question. I was doing a lot of infrastructure work, hence the name infrastructure. Funny story, I, I uh, was working for the financial services company. Uh, they were building a lot of data centers. They had a, pr- a couple of private jets. So when they do an acquisition, they'd stick me on one. I was just a young single guy. You know, shoot me out to whatever part of the country they were, the acquisition was, and I would work on assimilation. I'd begin right away as soon as the announcement was made. Many times I, I told them, look, you need to get me involved ahead of time because I could have told you this is the turkey, right? I was doing that. Well, my wife was about a month out from having our first kid, and I came home and said, you won't believe what I just did. I engineered my own exit. So I got a little severance package, tiny little severance package, and I don't have to work there anymore. And she's like, uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> But it all worked out. Ups and downs in in the small business. Hired lots of people and trained a lot of people up. Uh, I think that's probably where I get some mentoring skills is because I've taken a lot of people in fringes of the industry and trained them up to be experts, um, or at least, you know, high level. Took a printer repair guy and made him into one of the top networking and technology support guys just by training. Trained up a lot of CCIEs for Cisco in order to become a premier Cisco partner back in the day. But they all, you know, they'd be hired away. So, and that's fine because it's good for them. I can always find somebody else, but I'm getting tired of that. You know, I always having to go find somebody new to put in the stable and train them up. Let's see what I do next. Maybe, it may be shocking. I need a mentor. Yes. Always talk to somebody else before you make a life impacting career change. Just to, you know, bounce the idea off somebody who, who maybe has been at that level or been at that role or been at that company or just might have some input that's not what you'd expect. It really helps. How about the idea of the interim CIO position or the interim CISO position? I recognize that I've seen that title a lot. I just wanted to find out what the the origin of that was, you know, the origin story and, and maybe where the idea for you came from. For me, it made sense because that's what I was doing. I was working with a lot of customers who needed technology guidance for decisions, strategic, tactical, urgent in some cases. The idea of the of the virtual uh, leadership came to mind, as calling it that. And there's really, there's a difference between an interim and a virtual. An interim leader plugs in and goes deep, six to 18 months to drive some sort of transition, transformation for an organization. By the end of it, people forgot you're not actually an employee. But the goal is a lasting impact and change. So, and if you mess up at that role, it feels very personal and it and it can hurt your reputation. So, you're really invested in making that go well. A virtual leader, different from an interim leader, is somebody who will spend a limited number of hours and in one organization, but they're going to have maybe a dozen identical engagements at the same time. And the goal is to to provide nudges of better and best choices in the ongoing operations. So when you fail at that role, you know, your clients may not be listening or you may not be involved enough to know 
that the recommendations you make based on a standard don't fit that company for some reason, right? If you if you had more depth there, you'd know. But a lot of times customers will limit. So a VCSO is really, really bad about this because they need to have a VCSO name somewhere. So they'll get a contractor to, you know, be the VCSO and we need eight hours a month of your time. Man, it's hard to really know what's the best fit uh, in that role. However, there's a silver lining to that virtual leader. And that's something that I'm going to call the office of the CISO. You might have heard of that before, right? It's a group of CISOs, uh, virtual CISOs, who have different experience in different industries. So when you go to a site and you encounter something that is not within your wheelhouse, what do you do? You call a friend. Well, if they're in your group of contacts, you send them over, right? So they have an office, a group of CISOs. One of my sayings I say a lot is, no one of us knows enough. But together, we can solve any, anything. That's sort of the idea is you, you bring a team when you're a virtual. When you're an interim, it's you leading the whole show. That really helps me uh, to understand, I think, the requirement out there. It's usually there's a transition, I'm assuming, at the organization who needs an interim. Somebody's left or somebody was asked to leave. And there's still some kind of critical uh, requirement. And the search time, I'm guessing, is going to be fairly significant just for whatever reason. And and there's a there's a need as opposed to the virtual CISO, which is our CISO needs, needs a little bit of help for maybe uh, something that they haven't been exposed to or the same thing for the CIO. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So maybe if I've been a CIO for a distribution business, but I haven't been a CIO for a manufacturing business, the first time I'm asked to lead a manufacturing organization, I might make a condition of that hire be that I also bring in a, a VCIO to help with the, the manufacturing expertise until I can get up to speed on that. Absolutely. We're very fortunate, very, very fortunate in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that we have an extremely tight-knit, very close community of CISOs who call each other, uh, I've got this problem. What do you do? Have you used this vendor before? Do you have ideas for this? So that support group, if you will, it's very helpful. What would you tell the potential business owner, Russell, to be wary of before they strike it out on their own as you have? Monsters. There's monsters out there. The first thing I would tell somebody who wants to start a business, ensure you've got some run room, have some cash available, have a good client lined up, at least one. Get in a get a business address that's not your home. Perhaps a business phone number as well, because you're going to get tons of spam calls once your number's published as a business. But we all do business on our cell phones nowadays. I would also say take time to create good documents for proposals that have good legal legal language to make sure you're protected. Don't give your even your best client credit. You're not a bank, and if your bank and if your customer declares bankruptcy. Suddenly, the day after you've just delivered a pallet load of uh, technology gear worth $80,000, uh, you're going to be poor for a while. And don't ask me how I know. It's a very painful thing. So um, don't follow my example and have a clean, current, impactful website that has content people will use for reference. You know, a reference page on your site drives traffic there, and it just lets people know, hey, you're legit. And partnering well. Partnering well is really key to success. Both vendors who, who provide the upstream solutions you you use or sell and um, other other companies in your same line of work, right? For times of sharing overload. I get calls from my peer companies who don't have bandwidth to service a, a good customer and they know I'll, I'll treat them properly. 
and vice versa. If I have too much to do or I have you know too many things at once, if I'm doing more than one interim engagement at a time, um, it can almost put you in the hospital. It, it did. So I was doing, I was a CIO at two companies across town at once. It just about killed me. But the virtual side is a few hours. So that, that's easier to have lots of customers. Having partners you can share the load with is great. And that should share back and forth. Let's see, don't overlook the concept of the office of the CISO, that, that group mentality when you're doing things, if you're going to do cybersecurity. But uh, yeah, just partner well is the most important thing. I like that. Knowing the limits of what you can take on, a little bit of self-knowledge and being okay with offloading that to someone else, not not accepting everything just because it's new business, but also caring about, can I sustain this pace over time? What we have seen, Russell, from a lot of our guests who started their own business is they kind of started it up on the side while they were working a different full-time job. Was that the case for you or was it a full okay, I'm going out on my own starting from scratch at a certain point? Well, thank you for that question. Very embarrassing question, Nick. Um, If I'd had a mentor, I would have had a side gig going strong before I left my full-time job. So yes, that's that's great advice. (laughs) I recommend spin up, make sure you have possible success or super funded backing. Because if you have the right topic, you might get some good uh, good investor type people. And the kind of business you start, the way you start it, whether you're an S-Corp, finds an S-Corp or an LLC, if you do stock, how's that going to work? You really need some good advice on, on that. So find a lawyer who's not super expensive who can help you with those things. One of the things we didn't do, which I think we probably should do, is can you paint some of the differences between what a CIO does and what a CISO does? Chief Information Officer and Chief Information Security Officer. I would posit that most individual contributors do not quite understand what those roles really entail. The CIO role is a very business-focused role with broad responsibilities for all the technology, the people, the processes, and the organization. So they also have fiduciary responsibility to the board to ensure all the related spending, Staffing is everything, and everything is is set up properly to sustain operations. And they're all always thinking a few years out, but they have an immediate focus on the next quarterly or annual annual report. That's the CIO's focus is the annual report for the board. That's where they get their marching orders and they get their up or down status. For example, the CIO is going to help pick a new ERP platform. So if you're going to do something like SAP, you're going to and you're going to work nonstop to prevent the a conversion process from coming up the work to the operations and hitting revenue. So the the specific lens was one of the one of the notes you, you made for me, Nick. I thought it was a great idea. The lens to make decisions is that in a CIO role, it doesn't really matter what technology we use or who we need to run it. It just needs to to work to meet the operational needs of the business, so that you know they can make money or, or do what they need to do. If they're healthcare, they can serve people. So business systems. That's kind of the focus. Is is that an oversimplification? It is. I think it's really in my mind. It's um, the technology direction of the company, right? Are we going to be a big footprint technology or small footprint technology? If we're going to acquire a company, do we want their technology or not? You know, would, would we even decide not to buy them if their technology is bad, or if their technology is um, additive or even exponentially greater than what we have? That alone could be a good reason to, to buy a company. So a CIO would be very involved in those choices and decisions. Technically, 
Oh, definitely, I think the CISO should as well, too, because if you're buying a great company with technology and horrible security, you're going to find out too late. Do you find that the CIO most of the time in what you have seen reports to a board of directors and the CEO, or can the CIO sometimes report to some other executive before the CEO? I've seen both, and it really depends on what the company's in business to do. It's almost a personality trait of companies. I don't think there's a right or wrong. And as some as leaders change in those upper roles, the reporting structure should change accordingly too, because a lot of it's driven by personality. For a CISO, people ask, well, who should they report to? Well, you know, the CIO is an easy report, but there's a lot of good reasons for it not to report to the to the CIO because compliance reasons and so forth. So who would you pick? Well, nobody wants to report to the CFO, right? That's just that's just too financial stuff. You know, you want to be able to do stuff, not justify everything you do. And as a CISO, you tend to be considered the cost guy. So I think the best option is, if not the CEO, either way, you have a dotted line to compliance and the, the compliance or audit, audit committee of the board. But your reporting structure, just for management purposes, I think the best choice in the C-suite for a CISO to report is to the COO, chief operating officer, because that's where, that's what the company runs on, is it operating. And if cybersecurity is involved in keeping things running, then the COO is going to be a champion for you to help get that done. And the COO is business operations, not just technology operations, but entire business lens, right? True. But a CISO, a security, cybersecurity lead, is honestly, who cares what the technology is, right? That goes back to my two kinds of CISO. So there's a business CISO and there's a cyber CISO. You can probably see where I'm going with this, but a business-focused CISO tends to be more board-facing and would lead an organization based on programs built around the purpose that the organization has to be in business. Whether it's financial services, healthcare, energy, they have their own unique financial compliance, performance, safety goals, right? So a business-focused CISO is going to have a broader view, very similar to the CIO. Um, it's a it's a career path, honestly. I think it's a great career path. A business-focused CISO would mitigate a potential threat with insurance, risk acceptance, program changes based on the bottom line impact of the business. Or even the smartest, the best CISOs are going to come up with an idea to impact top line revenue, which is a whole other topic that I, I want to do at a conference somewhere. But they're but they're also very quick to outsource something that does that needs to happen quickly to meet business needs. Okay, let's flip a cyber focused CISO focuses on running the operational aspects of the security organization. And this kind of CISO is critical in highly sensitive, highly regulated environments, which makes sense. You need that, that wizard in there, not a, tech, not, not a super techie guy, but someone who can understand what's going on everywhere in the, in the technical and compliance landscape, uh, especially in these highly complex and exacting platforms. So when something comes up that needs a solution right away, as opposed to the business-focused CISO, the cyber-focused CISO already has in mind some small change or a new program or a just happens to have created last month with his team a fix-everything script that he knows he can just go run. So that's the kind of person you want running those very delicate, very sensitive operations. And then you surround that person with somebody who's got the business focus, right, so they can, they can peer together. Is the person with the business focus sometimes called a CSO, Chief Security Officer? Have you seen that term anywhere? 
I haven't seen that. But the truth is, we all need a little bit of both those types of personalities and, and, and understanding to work at our, at our best. But we have to figure out which one we're best at, which one we're uniquely gifted for, else we'll lose our sanity trying to be the other one. And that kind of goes into the, look, being the greatest technical resource on the planet is a good thing. There's big money in being the top cybersecurity guru at you know one of these big companies, right? So keeping all that running is is, a, is important. And again, it's very management driven. So it's a management skill, but it's a management skill with technical depth. That's so fascinating. I I think I translated it in my head a kind of you know business focused as as a little bit more skills that that are horizontal that span multiple different types of businesses. In, in common and the cyber one is a little bit more like vertically focused like um you know you could be like a cyber guru and compliance guru for healthcare and that doesn't necessarily mean that like a hospital person is the has the expertise to manage like a like a, a drug development organization or even a drug trial organization like it's like close but Maybe a little bit of a crossover, but maybe like, um, you know, very, very specific vertical skills. Am I anywhere close? Very great description. Thank you for summarizing that for me. I'm going to steal that from you. If you think about it, somebody with that depth of the vertical depth, what a great addition they would be to an office of the CISO team. Absolutely. So then the group can kind of take on challenges within that vertical and have somebody to call upon to plug into those situations. I can see that. Or financial services, maybe investment banking is different than retail banking is different from, you know, trading. I I can see that any highly regulated industry needs experts at those regulations and, and the compliance aspects of those things. And and it's probably a, a, a massive ongoing education thing, too, because those regulations change. You know, I'll, I'll throw something else out there. So it'll break your brain. Don't overlook the BISO role, the Business Information Security Officer. I really love it when a leader comes out and says, there's nothing wrong with continuing to pursue technical excellence. In fact, when we asked Russell what people really needed to consider before going into management, that's what he said. You can always feed your family with current technical skills. I think what he's telling all of us is we shouldn't be forced into management if it's something we definitely know we don't want. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't maybe at least consider it, especially if someone points it out to you and thinks you could do a great job. I think it's worth considering. But if you know it's not for you, you shouldn't be forced to go into it as a progression step within your company. And if you are, and that's the only path forward, maybe it's time to look elsewhere. Maybe you need to look for companies that have those higher level individual contributor roles that allow you to increase in salary, impact, and responsibility like the staff and principal engineer that Ken Collins spoke about in episode 242. And back in episode 242, we spoke about different modalities of the staff and principal engineer. 
it might could be done in very different ways. Four distinct categories that one might fall into if you're going after those types of roles within an organization. That is very similar to our discussion with Russell about the two distinct types of CISO, or Chief Information Security Officer. There's a business-focused CISO and a cyber-focused CISO. You might even call those modalities, ways in which the role can be done. And we might even need both at a specific company, depending on the needs of the business. But if you are someone who's going to go into technology leadership and you want to progress to those levels, or maybe one of those focus areas is more interesting to you than the other, and it is likely that they will not be highlighted in a job title. You would need to look at the job description and read some details on what's this role really about? What does it entail? And as you speak to other people who do that job, who have the title of CISO, assuming you have the ability to meet some of those people in your professional network somewhere, whether it's on LinkedIn or at a technical community meetup somewhere, ask them what they do, and maybe you'll be able to figure out what their focus is and why they chose that specific one. Going back to Russell and his pursuit of leadership specifically, he would provide factual data to help influence leadership decisions, and he really enjoyed it. I think that is just another version of learning from the struggles. Because Russell said that he had seen a lot of good ideas not be implemented. Maybe the message didn't get carried up to management the right way or presented with the right data. But some things that could really make an impact didn't get through the decision makers. He had the struggles before he was a manager, and he gets to help with those now. Just like the struggles he had when he was learning the concepts he needed to learn to write that book early in his career or to teach that class as a graduate teaching assistant, and even being a mentor to other people. Russell highlights that he didn't have a mentor when he was younger and making some of these decisions. So remembering those struggles that he had is something that he continues to do, and it's a driving force, I think, that gives him a purpose in his work and in his life as a whole. How many of us can remember what it was like to learn something, or the struggles we had during a particular time of our life, that could uniquely position us to solve some really interesting problems very much along the lines of what Al Elliott spoke about in episode 235, where his experience of bankruptcy actually gave him an idea for a business that helped homeowners not lose their home, not get foreclosed upon. A little bit different than some of our other guests who maybe started as part-time business owners or are still part-time business owners seeking full-time business ownership eventually, Russell went 100% into a full-time ownership of a business after telling his wife that he had engineered his exit. I'm sure that was a fun conversation to have, but you know what? 26 years later, as of the recording of this episode, he's still in business. He must have done something right. Here's to many more years of business, Russell. Thanks for setting an example for us and for providing some great ideas for those who are just getting started in business ownership. Hopefully you have some cash, some good customers, the right legal documents to protect you as a small business owner. All good advice. Management is war. That was so interesting to hear. 
and that we need to make allies wherever we can. Have you thought about going out of your way to hug the cactus and embrace the difficult things or the difficult people that you work with and to make them allies? I think that's something that we kind of would have to make ourselves do to really practice it and get better at. But I I love that idea, and I wonder if that approach works better as an interim leader or a virtual leader, those two types that Russell said he's been as a part of his business. Maybe it's a little bit better if you're an interim leader because you're there more, you have more time, six to 18 months stint in a company. But we didn't really talk about which of those situations it might work better to fit. I imagine that it would help and provide growth opportunities for the person hugging the cactus no matter what, regardless of how much time you get to spend in a situation or scenario. And I really like that idea of the office of the CISO. If we could pool the expertise and draw from that pool when we need help, it's really crowdsourcing expertise from a community of people that you respect and have the expertise that you don't. It should be okay to go and ask for the help that you need, even if it's for a really short term. Imagine how much you can learn from someone who hopefully remembers the struggles when they didn't know those things. Farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios. Adios.